0: So on the show today, Sir Ronald Cohen, philanthropist, venture capitalist, private equity investor and social innovator. He is chairman of the Global Steering Group for Impact Investment, the Portland Trust and the Impact Weighted Accounts Initiative at Harvard Business School. And with us is also my co-host, Rainier Indal, founder and managing partner of Summa Equity. Today, we'll talk about the impact revolution. So a big warm, warm welcome, Ronald. We are so excited to have you on our show.
1: Delighted to be here with you, Russell.
0: Thank you. So for nearly two decades, your pioneering initiatives in driving impact investment have catalyzed a number of global efforts, driving private capital to serve social and environmental good. And all of this leading the movement towards something you call the impact revolution. So what is the impact revolution?
1: So, Vesna, we've all lived through the tech revolution, right? It's a revolution of a different kind than the October revolution in, in Russia. But it is a revolution that occurs over decades. It accelerates, and it changes almost everything in its wake. The tech revolution has uh, even affected retailing. At the beginning, people wondered whether it would only affect the computer industry. Today, we can see that it affected everything. The impact revolution is similar. If the tech revolution was driven by entrepreneurship, innovation, and the creation of a professional venture capital and private equity industry, the impact revolution is driven By a huge change in values away from creating damage to our environment and to our society to actually bringing solutions through business and and investment, combined with huge leaps in technology, artificial intelligence, machine learning, enable us to bring impacts globally in ways that we could never contemplate, humanity could never. Contemplate previously. And finally, the force of impact transparency, the fact that technology enables us today to measure in a very granular way and to express in monetary terms the impacts which a company creates. The impact revolution, like the tech revolution which has preceded it, is causing huge disruption in business models. We see it with Tesla. As a first exemplar, where optimizing risk, return, and impact, which is the basis of uh, the revolutionary idea, enabled a brand new company to become a leader in a hundred-year-old industry and to lead the whole of the industry to electric vehicles. Are we going to see the same thing happening not just in uh, fossil fuel-based? industries but in finance, in uh, construction, in uh, every uh, single sector.
0: How can this revolution be accelerated?
1: I believe that uh, the big acceleration is just about to happen now with the arrival of mandatory transparency on the impact which companies create. We see that the International Sustainability Standards Board, under the umbrella of the organization that uh, regulates financial accounting across the whole world except the United States, is establishing now standardized metrics for environmental and social impacts. We see the SEC putting on the table mandatory disclosure of all environmental impacts for companies, including supply chain impact. And we see the EU imposing transparency on investment vehicles, which basically forces every significant investment manager in the world that seeks to access the European market to conform. And in my view, there's a mechanism now, a dynamic operating, which means that within three to five years, we will see the mandatory publication of impact statements by companies showing their revenues, costs, and their different impact in many countries. So this is what is going to accelerate the transition to what I call impact economies, where business and investment seeks to achieve not just a balance between risk and return, but a balance between risk, return, and impact.
2: And as you know, Sir Ronald, Summa has adopted the impact-weighted accounts. And for us, it's been, and this is voluntarily, it's not like we had to do this uh, impact reporting or that we have been uh, mandated it by our LPs. So every business has impact. And we want to buy companies and invest in companies that are solutions to our challenges. So we need a uniform way to measure across the portfolio. Some are solving a healthcare problem, some are solving an environmental problem, and some are solving a governance issue. So for us to have some standardized metrics where you can compare apples and oranges in a good way has been great. And I think... I'm surprised that not more investors are adopting this because it's also telling us how future-proof our portfolio is. Because this revolution, as you're saying, uh, similar to the tech revolution, is happening. And it's going to affect evaluations of companies. So if you don't have a good measure of what is really the impact of your portfolio, positive and negative, you have no clue how future-proof it is and what the returns are going to be going forward.
1: You're absolutely right, René. The work at the Impact Weighted Accounts Initiative at Harvard, which you're very familiar with, led by Professor George Seraphim and which I chair, has shown that a correlation already exists within sectors between higher levels of pollution and lower stock market values. So we already know that the 40 trillion plus of ESG funding has tilted the scales in favor of companies that pollute less. And the risk to an investor in a high pollution company is regulation and taxation, and also consumer preferences shifting away from the products of a company that pollutes. But when you see that a company like ExxonMobil creates $39 billion a year of environmental damage, from its operations alone, and you hear talk of a carbon tax, and you compare that 39 billion with 23 billion for Shell and 13 billion for BP, then you immediately understand the effect that transparency and taxation are going to have on the valuation of ExxonMobil. And I think the name of the game has changed away from Just looking at impact as risk, to looking at impact also as uncovering investment opportunities and business opportunities. So you look at uh, Tesla, and for all the idiosyncrasies of uh, Elon Musk, it's a remarkable company which has hit a trillion dollar valuation in 20 years. Why? Because it optimized risk, return, and impact. It could attract customers who didn't want to pollute through the use of the combustion engine. And it enabled Tesla to attract superior talent that shared that objective and investors that believed in it. And so Tesla uncovered a major opportunity in the automobile industry because of impact. And I think the name of the game today is that uh, companies that optimize these three dimensions are going to be worth more than those that are still pursuing a risk-return strategy. So I agree.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying, uh, uh, Ronnie. And, and I think your book, Impact, is very inspiring and, and a fantastic book. And you do write in it about how businesses can solve bigger problems and, and faster and how also governments need to be aligned uh, with that. And that, that's happening as well. So... I agree that it's not only about risk and if you compare on with a carbon taxation and everything and what might happen there, but it's about the opportunities because these problems need to be solved and we are getting more and more of these problems So, and business needs to solve it. So it's huge in opportunities in solving these problems. So that's why I think businesses that don't understand that they need to be part of a positive solution, they're missing a huge opportunity and they're facing a big risk.
1: Yeah, they're facing a huge risk of disruption, because if you take clean energy, $25 billion went into venture capital, addressing climate last year or the year before. And you have now a $10 trillion private equity and venture capital industry. When I kicked off in the 70s and early 80s with venture capital, there was no venture capital industry. And so now we're beginning to see new business models in education where the person being trained for a job pays for the education after they're in the job, not before. We're beginning to see telehealth make great strides where you can do diagnosis remotely, which threatens existing models of primary medicine, for example. And so this combination of impact and technology is creating huge opportunities, just like the tech revolution did when it started
2: in the 70s. So, Ronnie, I'm just curious because you pivoted before I did from private equity into impact investing, and you've been a big inspiration to me in my journey. What made you pivot, and how did you, you know, what were the events that triggered you to go in that direction?
1: So, I was a 60s kid. I was at Oxford at the time of idealism and the campaign for nuclear disarmament and flower power. And I wanted to have a meaningful life. And I was lucky in that I managed to get a scholarship to Harvard Business School, where you also went, in the mid 60s, just as the tech revolution was starting and just before the venture capital industry. Really began. And I felt that um, it was a way for me to create jobs in the UK, which had very high unemployment. I also needed to make money. As you know, I left Egypt as a refugee at the age of 11, came to the UK not uh, speaking English, and was lucky to be welcomed in the UK and to find an aspiring teacher who said to me, you should go to Oxford, and I'll train you for the exams, which were very daunting coming from the state school that I went to. So I had been helped, and I felt it was my role in life to help in my term. Now, I thought venture capital would create a lot of jobs. I hadn't appreciated that it would expand the gap between rich and poor, In the way we did. Sure, we were backing entrepreneurs who came from nothing to become wealthy and to enrich those around them. But if you looked at what was happening in society, Uh the gap between rich and poor was ever widening. And today it stands where it stood in 1929, where the bulk of the population hasn't seen a real improvement in standard of living for a decade or more. And those who've been lucky enough to be in finance and tech have made fortunes on a scale that could never be imagined previously. So I was aware of that. And in fact, I mentioned it at the 30th anniversary of APEX in 2002 in a speech I gave. And I said, look, if we don't deal with those who left behind better, a curtain of fire is going to come to separate rich from poor in our countries in continents and throughout the world, which is unfortunately more or less what has been happening. When you look at the Gilets Jaunes and the Black Lives Matter in the United States and what happened in Chile and the Lebanon, people are rebelling against the fact that their lives are not improving when other people's lives are. And by the way, It's leading to a backlash against democracy, if we think more widely, because people are saying, look, what's democracy doing for me? Give me an an undemocratic leader who's going to deal with my problems. And I much prefer that. And this is becoming a bit of of a trend, threatening democracy across the world. So I was very conscious of this. And I'd made enough money by the age of 53 that I could say to my partners, I'll leave at the age of 60. I want to devote my life to more meaningful things. I don't want my epitaph to read, he delivered a 30% IRR, internal rate of return on his investment. I want to deal with social issues and I want to deal with the conflict in the Middle East between Israelis and Palestinians. Because... Having been born in Egypt and marrying a wonderful Israeli wife and spending time on both sides of this divide, I felt I could make a contribution to solving it. And then by luck, Rainier, when I said to my partners in 98, I will leave in 2005 when I hit the age of 60, I got a phone call in 2000 from the Treasury. In the UK. And the Treasury was asking me to lead the task force to look at how we deal with poverty. And so it connected, as you can see, with the things that had been bothering me. And I agreed to do that. And the Social Investment Task Force published the report a year later, which basically said, look, we don't do a good job of dealing with social issues that arise from poverty and in other ways. Because we rely on government and philanthropy only. The massive capital is in financial markets. And just as we brought finance to entrepreneurs who wanted to use new technologies to improve themselves and the world, and I think on the whole, (laughs) they have improved the world, So this time, we need to bring finance to social entrepreneurs who want to improve lives, and today we would say, and the environment too. And that really gave me the roadmap for the, you know, 25 years that followed 2000. So when I left in um, 2005, I was already working on releasing unclaimed assets from bank accounts to create a social investment bank, which I'd recommended be set up to work out how you bring investment to tackle social issues. Then we created social finance, which invented the social impact bond. Now, the social impact bond was the first security in history where the return depends on achieving a social improvement. In the case of the first bond, the Peterborough bond, reducing the number of prisoners going back to jail. And famously, we reduced the number by 9.5% and the government paid the investors back their 5 million pounds with a 3.1% annual return. And then you can see how this new thinking made it to mainstream markets today we have $1.4 trillion in sustainability-linked bonds and loans, where the rate of interest the company pays on its bond or its debt is reduced if it achieves certain environmental or social targets. And that led me to the conclusion that if investment shifts to optimize risk, return, and impact, then companies must shift to do the same because that's what investors want. And so in reality, this impact investment, which we started off with in 2000, was known as social investment then, was really creating a transition to impact economies. And that required transparency on impacts. And that transparency transforms everything. It transforms the valuation of companies. It enables governments to tax companies directly for their carbon emissions or other social ills or to provide incentives directly. It opens the door for entrepreneurs to identify industries that are creating negative impacts and disrupt them, as did uh, Elon Musk through Tesla, but as we see in every sector beginning to happen. and so. It is a revolution. It's a revolution which is going to lead to a change in investment portfolios and the way we do business very similarly to the first tech revolution, except this tech revolution is meeting with impact thinking and with transparency. And so it becomes a very powerful catalyst for shifting our economies to bring solutions rather than to create problems. Yeah.
2: And uh, this impact revolution, which we have really been kicking off, Ronnie, is starting to mainstream. So in many of our companies, we have sustainability-linked financing. This links to other metrics and that impacts the interest rate on it. And uh, APEX is also now doing impact and sustainability investing.
1: In the private equity industry, interestingly, was one of the first to begin to raise dedicated funds Because of the pressure of investors and because the private equity and venture capital industries tend to look ahead much further than uh, stock markets do. So you see uh, TPG managing now several billions in this area. You see Bain doing the same partners group, as you know, in Europe, uh, yourselves, and I think you've led in the area of impact measurement. I congratulate you for that. Apollo, um, you can go on and on and on. You see major private equity groups now moving into the space.
2: That's right, and I think that's excellent. But I'm also puzzled by why do they launch impact funds, and then they raise their main funds afterwards, so they keep them still separate. So we had the Christian Sindling on the podcast talking about EQT, and EQT has the sustainability impact thinking across the board in all of their funds. So why are funds raising dedicated impact funds instead of thinking impact uh, throughout?
1: I think because their existing teams, if they're very big companies, have ways of looking at deals in terms of risk and return. And it's difficult for them to incorporate the impact thinking. And so if you start it in a separate unit with a somewhat different starting point, which is we optimize risk, return, and impact, it's easier and you can then migrate it to your main funds.
2: And I know when we started up, and I think you uh, also uh, met this thinking uh, early on, is that there's a trade-off between impact and returns. Well, Well, we've been talking a little bit about this. It's really not. I mean, it's enhancing returns going forward. If you think about how this revolution is happening, do you still think there is this mindset? There is a trade-off between impact and returns.
1: I think it's completely wrong, but that the mindset exists. The reason it exists is that people confuse impact investing with philanthropy. And philanthropy, you give your money away, so clearly, you know, your return is non-existent. And people think, well, if you're trying to blend philanthropy and investment, you're going to make less of a return. But you're not blending philanthropy and investment. You have a new way of investing that delivers better financial returns because it's consistent with changing consumer preferences and the use of new technologies. And that's what enables impact investment to mainstream quickly now. It's actually a better way to deliver superior returns. But most people, just as happened with the arrival of technology, think, well, this is just a peripheral thing. And it's gonna affect the computer industry, but it's not gonna like technology, you know, forty, fifty years ago, it's not gonna affect anyone else. So they haven't seen the different bounces of the ball that came from technology to the cellular phone to the internet and that have uh, transformed every sector, including retailing, which seemed so remote from the tech revolution at the beginning. And the same thing is happening with impact now. And as you said, companies that don't embrace the impact thinking and the convergence of this impact thinking with new technologies are going to wake up to discover they have a new type of Microsoft and Apple overtaking them. If we think about our power of influence,
0: so each and one of us have um, an important role to play. We can, as a consumer, we can be an entrepreneur, a member of a team in a company, etc. So how do we get everyone to embrace this and commit truly? So I mean, in my
1: book, which I referred to, Impact, I talk about the fact that impact is really disrupting everything. And each of us has a role to play in the revolution because of that. So it's disrupting consumption. In France, you have an app called Duca, which shows the health impact of the products you're buying. More than 20 million people are using this app to make their purchases in supermarkets. If you look at uh, the job market, young people don't want to work for companies that are creating harm. And so it makes it more difficult for them to recruit. They go to the disruptors who are inventing new ways of educating and of treating the sick and so on and so forth. They're inspired by that. They want meaning in their lives that goes beyond making money. When it comes to investors, if you ignore impacts today, like in the United States, a war has started really now on this issue of ESG and impact, where we see the legislatures of 18 states refusing to use investment managers who are applying ESG principles to their investment. It's nonsense. It's like believing the earth is flat. As Galileo said, walking out of the trial, it's still turning around the sun, and here impacts are still affecting the values of companies, whether these people want to accept it or not. We see the correlation in in the work at Harvard Business School, which is going to be continuing by the way, to analyze the relationship between impact and company and company value, and so we are in a place today, vesna where You have people suing the SEC because it's ultra-virase in trying to impose transparency on impact. You have states legislating that ESG is unacceptable. And on the other side, in the US, you have 1,500 lawsuits against companies for the pollution they're causing, right? And we know where this is going to end, right? It's going to end with investors doing what's right for their customers and they are going to take into account all the considerations that help deliver a superior return. And the data is exploding on impact. Investors are using it. Regulators realize some investors have access to it and others don't, and it's not standardized, as Rene was saying. It's difficult to make valid comparisons, and it's not verified. You can make unsubstantiated claims. And so, regulators have to get involved. And it's regulators who have pushed the creation of the ISSB. It's not IFRS that saw a problem coming. It's regulators who said if you want to serve the needs of investors and we have to maintain orderly markets, then we need this transparency. And so, We're in the, I mean, it really is a revolution in that sense. The status quo is fighting back. The Milton Friedman doctrine is fighting back against the impact thinking. But it's inevitable that the impact thinking is going to win because it's just the better way to do business and to invest today.
2: I remember back in, uh, it was back in the days when there was still a discussion whether the internet was a fad or not. And sort of the .dot com, you know, is, <laughs> it's it's. Uh, and now we can laugh of it, right? But it, the schism that you are uh, are mentioning is that you know some are now debunking ESG and saying that trying to mandate against it. And it's like we're going to look back in a couple of years, really. Sort of, was that even possible? But when do you think we will get there? When when everyone and this is mainstream and this uh, schisma is not existing anymore?
1: Well, I think things are happening faster than in the past. In 1929, after the crash, investors stood up and realized that uh, they hadn't had transparency on the profits companies make because each company could pick its own accounting principles. There were no auditors to verify the numbers and companies could even put part of their profits into hidden reserves without telling their shareholders, if you you can believe it. And as you say, when we look back on that, we say, my God, how could that be? But it took four years to get to legislation for the introduction of gap accounting and auditors. In 1933, the Roosevelt administration introduced that legislation and the world followed. Now, the way I see it, there's a historical parallel. Within two years of the COVID-19 crisis, we have the creation of the ISSB and the SEC proposals coming up. Because the data is exploding, regulators are restive, And in my view, within the next three to five years, we will have legislation. It may start in Europe first, given the politics in the USA, but we will have legislation mandating the publication of impact statements. Now, then for the change to occur, you need management of companies to realize that their cost of capital is gonna go up if they don't optimize risk-return impact. So you take the example of ExxonMobil, if the value of ExxonMobil is gonna fall because some consumers move away from it and there's the introduction of a carbon tax, ExxonMobil has to think, well, how much do we have to invest in order to reduce our carbon emissions right and they have to convince their shareholders that this is the right thing to do and so when the transparency comes it's going to create a process of transition which far sighted managers are going to ride on and less far sighted managers are going to try to fight and you know, as I said before, if you persist in creating negative consequences in using child labor or in polluting the water streams and the atmosphere, you'll pay a price at the end of the day.
0: How do you think that the private equity industry can amplify its impact further?
1: I think it's easier for the private equity industry to bring transparency uh, than for a huge conglomerate. Uh, first of all, many of the companies that we invest in are one type of product companies rather than conglomerates. You know, that tends to be the model. The pressure of investors is also felt more powerfully by private equity because you're dealing with a relatively small number of institutional investors. And when you come to your fundraising, every two to three years or sometimes every year for some of uh, the groups, you're confronted with the need to satisfy the pressures that they feel to report back to their pensioners or to their customers saying, look, uh, we are doing the right thing in terms of the environment and society. So I think it's not surprising that the private equity industry in a way is uh, launching specialist funds or migrating, for those who are most advanced, they're migrating the whole of their portfolios to optimizing risk and return and impact.
2: If I can just add to what you're saying, I mean, all productive firms want to make sure that they build better businesses. That's quite fundamental to our industry. So when we are now measuring the impact of our companies with impact with their accounts, we have a financial number that we can compare with the p and we can we measure our uh, internal rate. So what is our return on our investment? But the impact rate the accounts allows us to measure the external rate of return. And if we are truly building a better business, the external rate of return should be higher than our internal rate of return, or the impact the company is having should grow more than the revenues of the company is growing. If not, we're not building a better business we're actually making a less better business. So that's the way to amplify, as I see it, through our companies, the the impact.
1: I totally agree with that. I mean, as a private investor in early stage ventures in Israel, where technology has been taking off in a very significant way. I was fortunate enough 30 years ago to establish Apex's office in Israel, which was the first we were investing in venture capital in those days, the first venture capital firm to bring institutional money to Israel. I see the new generation of entrepreneurs bringing impact into their business plan. And they are the ones who aspire to build the most disruptive companies. So they are in a mindset where they're saying, we are going to use impact today to achieve higher growth and higher profits and the leadership position very often in a new field. Now if you take the field of finance, my own daughter is an impact entrepreneur in a company which called Rise Up, which provides a finance platform for families to manage their monthly budgets, their monthly cash flows and shift from overdraft into savings. And RiseUp designs a savings product that benefits the more vulnerable in our society. If you think in terms of our uh, banking model, A banking model is based on the fact that we charge the most vulnerable the most. And why? Not because of the loss rate, but because they're too vulnerable to refuse. It's what the market can bear. If you have no money, you'll pay 14% for an overdraft because you have to, right? So you're beginning to see disruption coming from the impact thinking in finance, And it's going to transform finance. We're going to see all sorts of new AI-based platforms making more sense of what you charge somebody relative to the real loss rate. You can see the same thing, as I was saying, happening in education. Uh, But you can also see it happening in the construction industry. Companies that are worried about uh, the marine environment that are bringing additives to concrete now to turn them into reefs instead of humming the seas. So I see impact as a major motivator of entrepreneurs today in defining a new type of business model that is aligned with the preferences of consumers and talent.
0: So if we move over to more of a helicopter perspective, what would you say that the world needs most right now?
1: The world needs most a reduction in the gap between rich and poor. The reason we're seeing democracy threatened, as I was saying earlier, and populist leaders exploiting the frustration of those who have been left behind is that people's expectations about a fair share in the system have been dashed, and people have had to change the way they live to forego certain holidays that they had or whatever in order to make ends meet, while others have been buying yachts and planes and villas and and so on. Now, what impact does by bringing transparency on employment impact, for instance, uh, and you can see it at uh, the IWAI at the Harvard Business School, is it begins to shine a light in a different way on social issues. For example, take the issue of diversity. Diversity is a major frustration in society, lack of diversity, obviously. If you try to measure the diversity of a company, which hasn't been done in this way before in economic terms, you say, well, look, you can compare through artificial intelligence, machine learning, and big data. You can compare the demographics within an Amazon facility and the community outside. You can ascribe a salary level to the excluded gender or ethnic groups, and you can come to the view that Amazon's diversity debit is $6.5 billion a year. You can compare it with Apple at about $2.4 billion a year. You can compare it with their wage bills and say Amazon is the better performer on diversity because it has 16% diversity debit as a percent of its wage bill versus Apple, 25%. And so you begin to see how the transparency begins to redress social imbalances. You can also measure differences in pay and advancement according to gender and ethnic groups. You can expose the companies that are paying below the living wage. And all this data in the US is having to be filed with the Department of Labor. Now, it's not it's not data that you're forcing companies to bring to light. And so I think impact has a major role to play in reducing gaps. So it's one way is through the way that businesses behave. Another way is through financial instruments like sustainability-linked environmental and social uh, bonds, and social impact bonds, and development impact bonds. I was in a restaurant in New York yesterday, and somebody, I think from Norway, came to me and shook my hand and said, we did the refugee impact bond in Jordan that you talked about in Davos Nine years ago, we didn't talk about just Jordan, it was a broader. we did it, you know, we got it done. And you can see that people like uh, this gentleman were motivated to use these new, more effective ways of tackling social issues and bringing in investment capital to it. So we're just dealing with a change in capitalism now, it's a change of values. And uh, the new generation's leading it. The status quo is sometimes fighting back, you know, as we were saying. But the consumers started it. The investors realized it had significant implications for the return on their portfolios. And now the investment world is driving business to change its ways. And government doesn't want to confront business. So government isn't legislating at the top its regulators are having to maintain the orderliness of markets. And so government is acting through its regulators now. But when the transparency comes, government is going to be able to use it to arrive at a fairer system of taxation. And it's changing philanthropy too. I mean, we're not here to chat about philanthropy, but philanthropy has never measured its outcomes. We've all given away money to organizations that have gone out to fund activities, rather than to measure the outcomes they have achieved through these activities. And if you think about it, I think it's an interesting point for those of us who are philanthropists. Philanthropic organizations aren't accountable to anyone except their beneficiaries, unless you have a living donor, except their beneficiaries. And the beneficiaries have no voice except if you measure the outcomes. If you measure the outcomes, you can say to a foundation management team, compared to others who are dealing with the issue of homelessness, you're doing a less good job. Your beneficiaries are benefiting less. You have to get your act together. And so this impact revolution is, in, in my view, just a change in evolution. In this case, the evolution of the capitalist system.
0: You mentioned the next generation. What is your advice to young people now when they are making choices to design their life and work?
1: If they want to be entrepreneurs, I say bring impact to the center of your business model. So the more profit you make, the more impact you've delivered. If they want to work for a big company, then pick a company that has values consonant with yours and do your best to deliver the maximum impact. If they want to go into government, I say, then begin to push for the measurement of outcomes. Governments should have outcomes budgets, not fund activities. We're not putting billions of dollars into education. We're funding the education of so many people to this attainment level, and our budget for next year is higher. And if you're joining a philanthropic foundation, then focus on Measuring outcomes, begin to use pay for success, get the endowment of your foundation to invest in a way that's consonant with uh, your grant giving policies.
0: What do you want the main takeaway to be for the people listening to this episode?
1: I think that the world changes. And if you're young, you want to get on the crest of the new wave. When I was 22 or 3 at Harvard Business School, I sensed that something was in the air. Technology and entrepreneurship weren't considered capable of overtaking big businesses by the mass of Harvard Business School students around me, but I felt differently. I thought if you're an entrepreneur and it's a new technology, and you're young, you're gonna be able to be much more flexible about taking full advantage of the disruption you cause than an established organization that fears disruption. So it seemed obvious to me that the SWIFT would win the race. I feel the same thing today. I feel something is in the air. It's very clearly connected with the environmental and social issues we face. And young people are scared by the potential outcome. And so they are leading a change in consumer preferences. Uh, they're influencing their parents in the way they're investing their money or in the way they are the parents are, are managing uh, businesses. If you want to be an entrepreneur today, you have to be and you want to make the most of the opportunity before you, you have to be conscious of this change and bring impact into your business model. And many years ago, when I was asked this question, about young entrepreneurs, what's my advice? I said, start young, think big, and stick with it. And uh, that is still my advice. I think a lot of young people by the age of 25 or 26, just as I did when I set off to create what became APAC, are in a position to jump into the water and swim to create great businesses. And when you delay, you very often delay so long that the opportunity no longer ever seems attractive to you. So still the same advice. Start young, think big, and stick with it.
2: And I would like to add to it for those policymakers that are listening to this episode, we need to have mandatory outcome measurements and and reporting. That is the only way we're going to get collectively to move in the right direction of of creating positive outcomes
0: thank you so much Ronald thanks Rainer for a wonderful conversation full of insights and wisdom thank you so much
1: thank you Vester thank you
0: This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after... We release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luka and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see.